Hey, everybody, it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. We are online at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly, and uh, today on the show, the writer Eula Biss with her new book, On Immunity. You might have heard of it. It's uh, been getting some glowing reviews and uh, was selected as one of the year's 10 best books by the New York Times. It is about vaccinations, or at least that is the starting point, which started for Eula uh, when she had her first child in 2009. It was time to begin vaccinating, according to standard medical wisdom. And uh, in addition to the usual childhood inoculation schedule, there was a nasty new flu strain emerging, the H1N1 strain. And public health officials were recommending that kids get the flu shot. But on the other hand, Eula was hearing from a number of friends and acquaintances and fellow moms about the dangers of vaccines. Dangers, they said, that the medical establishment and the pharmaceutical industry were ignoring or even suppressing. Those fears were fueling a growing anti-vaccination movement, and uh, a number of people were deciding not to have their kids vaccinated. Eula was getting it from both sides and really didn't know which way to go, so she started researching, first uh, looking into the science of vaccines and questions about their safety. But the closer she looked, the more she realized that the whole vaccine debate hinged on factors that go way beyond medical science alone. This book is uh, in large part about fear and mm-hmm. mistrust of modern medicine, of Western medicine, or mistrust of authority, fear of modernity, maybe, fear of technology, uh, and mm-hmm. the way it plays into worries about vaccination. Uh, mm-hmm. Fear isn't a new topic for you, though. No. You've been writing about it for a while. Yeah. My last book, Notes from No Man's Land, is the place where I really started wrestling with fear, thinking about fear a lot. And in that book, as in this book, I was really looking at how fear drives us apart and um, how fear of other people um, can be understood as a kind of hostility and in some situations a kind of violence. Um, and sometimes that's a, more metaphorical. Sometimes it's a social violence. Um, and sometimes it's literal. Sometimes there's real violence driven by fear. In uh, Notes from No Man's Land, the fear was fear across racial lines, right? Yeah. Again and again, I observed how people justified racist actions or racist attitudes in the name of fear. And it was interesting for me to move from that arena into this medical arena because um, I was somewhat surprised to see the same thing happening and to see actions that um, struck me as antisocial cloaked under, under fear. Uh, again, we're talking at least uh, nominally the fear of vaccinations, the fear of their side sure. effects, uh, yeah, the fear that yeah. the uh, cure might be worse than the disease. Mm-hmm. How is that similar in any way to the antisocial racial fears that you were looking at in your previous book? I think in both cases, people sometimes use a, a fear that seems earned. And, and I would question in, in both situations whether the fear is, is earned or not. Um, use that fear to justify an, an action that could potentially harm someone else. And in this country, we have, I think, uh, a frightening tendency to condone the actions that people take when they feel afraid. 
And so I, I saw a similar pattern when I was looking at how people feel about vaccination and how people justify their actions around vaccination. And in many cases, parents that I spoke to seemed to feel justified in taking any action that was motivated by fear. Um, so the fear of, of side effects of vaccines is seen as a, as a blanket justification for, uh, in some cases, potentially putting more vulnerable people at risk. As you describe in great detail in your book, uh, the purpose of vaccinations and the effectiveness of them in stopping the spread of an illness doesn't have as much to do with protecting any individual as protecting the group. So when you get vaccinated or your child gets vaccinated, uh, the idea is that they won't spread the disease. Yeah, and there's a number of cases where we vaccinate one group of people to protect a different group of people. So rubella is a good example. Um, rubella is not, in general, a super serious disease for a lot of different demographic groups, um, but it's very, very serious for unborn babies. Um, so when pregnant women get rubella, there's a high chance that their fetuses, developing fetuses, will be harmed. And so we vaccinate the whole population against rubella to protect those unborn babies. I remember a study in Japan some years ago where they found that the best way to prevent elderly people from dying or, or getting very sick from the flu was not to vaccinate those people, but it was to vaccinate kids who spread the flu and whose immune systems reacted well and uh, built up defenses really well in response to the vaccine, whereas elderly people uh, were not as responsive to the vaccine. Ideally, you'd vaccinate both populations, but if you had to choose, vaccinating the kids actually protected the elderly more than vaccinating the elderly themselves. Yes, yes. I read that study too, and I think it's really interesting example of herd immunity and how herd immunity can be leveraged to protect a group that can't necessarily protect itself. So the elderly have immune systems whose strength is waning. So in your seventh and eighth and ninth decade, the the power of your immune system is, is falling off. And you can't necessarily amount a, an aggressive response to a vaccine and, and protect your own system um, when you're elderly the way you can when you're young. So in some ways, it's a really smart public health strategy to vaccinate the young in order to protect the elderly. You know, it's, it's one thing to agree in theory that we should all get vaccinated or that the majority should get vaccinated to protect the vulnerable minority. But then it's another thing to confront the question when you've been told that perhaps there is a danger to the vaccine and when the mm -hmm. person whose fate is in your hands is your child. And you ran into that mm -hmm. yourself mm -hmm. in 2009 when you had your first child, your son. Uh, and this was the time when the H1N1 flu was being described as a coming epidemic or pandemic, very scary, mm -hmm. a swine mm -hmm. flu. Uh, and you had to, to face the question. I mean, you had people telling you that the, that the vaccine might be dangerous, right? Yeah, there was a lot of noise around that particular vaccine. Um, and there were fears that it hadn't been tested well, that its production had been rushed. There were fears about possible side effects. And I should say that every vaccine has potential side effects. Um, they're quite rare compared to the side effects um, associated with many even over-the-counter pharmaceuticals. 
but they do exist and and people do suffer those side effects and it's that's a reality um so there were concerns uh, uh, about whether this vaccine might have side effects that were unknown at the time but then there were also concerns about uh the H1N1 strain and um particularly the fact that it seemed to be showing a very different pattern of mortality and morbidity than the seasonal flu uh typically shows and specifically that it it seemed to be hitting young people um with strong immune systems harder than it was hitting say the elderly if that were true it wouldn't be the first time that was also true of the the spanish flu that in, was uh, 19 and uh, was it 17 1918 1918 yeah, that killed so many mm-hmm. millions of people it actually killed more young people than it did older people it did and it killed more people than the first world war the death toll there was was quite devastating and that's part of why um the cdc and the world health organization were advocating for vaccination against h1n1 fairly aggressively um and that was seen by some people as fearmongering um and it was seen by other people as an unholy alliance between um government agencies and pharmaceutical companies but i think the the real driving force behind that advocacy was the knowledge of what had happened the last time a flu strain with this, these characteristics showed up in the population um and one of the problems with influenza is that it's very very unpredictable and the strains mutate very quickly so um it's it's very difficult for scientists to know exactly what's going to happen with a new strain of influenza um some turn out to be quite mild and and some are quite devastating so hard to predict just how virulent each new strain is going to be but is it also hard to predict how potentially dangerous the vaccine is going to be? Not as much so. No, and along the way I eventually ended up um interviewing an influenza expert um who's also an immunologist and I learned quite a bit from him about both influenza and uh the the vaccine and that vaccine against H1N1 was was made and tested in the same way that our flu vaccines are always made and tested so there's no reason to think that it would have side effects that were unusual or unpredictable and it was tested before it was it was given to the population you say that in hindsight but at the time you were making the decision about whether to get your uh, baby vaccinated um, how did you grapple with this information, uh, and uh, and how did you come down on one side or the other eventually? It was v- very difficult, and that's part of what propelled me into writing this book. The information that I was encountering was initially very contradictory, um, and once I started sifting through it more carefully, I could see that there there was actually quite a bit of scientific consensus. But a lot of the noise around vaccination makes it difficult to see that if you're a newcomer to the debate. And and I was, I didn't know that much about vaccination, and I hadn't been thinking about it for very long. And what I was seeing was a lot of other parents who were alarmed or wary or suspicious. And, um, and I'm not someone who by, I, I guess by nature or philosophy is inclined to 
do what the government recommends I do just because the government has told me to. So, um, so for me, it was a very confusing space. And, um, I guess I just wish that I knew then what I know now. And I actually feel that it probably wasn't necessary for me to do as much research as I did to feel comfortable with that vaccination. I think I also could have put trust in my son's pediatrician who encouraged me to vaccinate him and has proven since then to be a wonderfully responsive and responsible physician. Though, you know, now that we're circling back to, to the question of risk, I, I do want to say something about that. And um, at the time w when my son was just born, one of my main concerns was not doing anything that was unnecessarily risky or, or that would um, subject him to, to danger. And I think that that's the sensibility that many people parent with. They, they want to protect their children. But the reality of our lives is that um, the way we live is, is full of risk. And we accept lots of risks in our lives for reasons that aren't very noble. Um, so, for instance, my son frequently rides in automobiles. And that's probably the riskiest thing that he does in his day-to-day -day life. And when he isn't riding in an automobile, he's often riding on the back of my bicycle, which is arguably even riskier. And I think that I accept the risks associated with both of those things for reasons that are considerably less noble and altruistic than the reasons why I accept the risk of vaccination for my son. And if my son were to die in a car accident, it would be horrific, and I can't predict how I would feel. But I'm pretty sure I wouldn't pledge, oh, I should have never, ever, ever let him ever be in a car. And yet you would probably be full of regret and self-blame if he died as a result of a vaccine that you had chosen to have him given. At this point, I'm not sure. You know, there's a quote from, from Benjamin Franklin where he's he's thinking about the regret he feels over having not variolated his child who died of smallpox. And variolation was the technology that predated vaccination. And he writes a, of how much he regrets that child losing his life um, and that to Benjamin Franklin, it felt like a preventable death. And I think that with vaccination, one could feel guilt and blame in either direction. There's a small chance that something bad could happen given either action. So there, there's a chance that a, a devastating disease could kill your child if you don't vaccinate. That's, that's a small chance. I don't want to exaggerate it at all. And then there's a, a tiny chance that something could go wrong with vaccination. And I'm not sure that it's, it's fair to put the blame for that on the parent in mm. either case. Mm. No, um, I wasn't, believe me, I wasn't suggesting that the blame would be um, correctly laid at the feet of the parents in that case, but more that the psychology is that you would never blame yourself for allowing your kid to ride in a car because, first of all, that's a, a normal everyday thing that's accepted and people don't criticize mm -hmm. that and make us aware of the risks involved. And the second is we humans 
tend to downplay the risks of things that, where we feel we have autonomy and control, as we do yeah. when we're driving a car. Right. And we play up the risks of uh, situations uh, such as riding in a plane, even though it, a modern airliner is much safer than a car. We play those mm -hmm. up because it's out of our hands, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the the psychology around risk is really complicated and really interesting. And I really just scratched the surface of it in my research for this book. But it's a place where I'd love to learn more because learning the little bit that I learned really propelled me into all these reflections on what I consider risky and what I don't and where I accept risk happily in my life and, and where I'm, I'm very cautious and wary. And once I started thinking about it very carefully, I could see that there were a lot of inconsistencies in my own thinking around risk. But I could also see that there were values at play there. So for instance, I ride my bicycle a lot, and I, I put my son on my bicycle, and, and now he's he's just old enough to quite dangerously ride his own bicycle now. And I'm fully aware that when we ride around town and, and ride in traffic and cross streets, that there is risk involved. And I love getting around that way and value what it means for us to do that enough that I'm willing to accept the risks. Mm. And as I researched vaccines, I, I came to see that many of the things that I value socially were supported by vaccination. And um, that's when I came to feel that, that I was comfortable accepting the risks associated with vaccination. And you think that the uh, benefits far outweigh the relatively small risks? That's my impression, and, and I'm not alone on that either. There's a whole variety of risk-benefit assessments out there, both for individual vaccines and for the vaccine schedule as a whole. In all the cases that I saw, those assessments really, really favor vaccination. But that isn't to say that there aren't risks and they aren't real. I was speaking recently to a woman whose father died of a very rare side effect of actually her polio vaccination when she was an infant. She was vaccinated with the oral polio vaccine, which we no longer use in this country. And in some very small number of cases, around one in five million, that um, vaccine virus could become virulent and jump from the person who's been vaccinated to another person. And wow. that's what happened in her case. And wow. her father died when she was an infant. And, and by the way, I mean, the odds you're talking about, one in five million, a chance that, uh, you know, one in five million people who are vaccinated might infect someone else, as opposed to a vaccine that did eradicate millions of cases of polio. I mean, yeah, that seems like a pretty easy call there. Well, and it depends on the country. You know, it, actually, the, the side effects of that oral polio vaccine um, became in this country too great for us to bear. In the early 90s, I think it was, or the early, or the late 80s or the early 90s, we switched to the inactivated polio virus vaccine for that reason, because every year a, a certain number of people in this country were paralyzed as a result of the oral polio vaccine. The drawbacks of the oral polio vaccine are, in some countries, also its benefits. So there are countries that prefer the oral polio vaccine and use it right now because the person who's been vaccinated 
can pass the vaccine virus to other people. And I should clarify that passing the vaccine virus to other people is not uncommon with the oral polio vaccine. And you can actually essentially vaccinate other people you come into contact with that way. But what is uncommon is that the virus would become virulent, powerful again, the way it did in in this woman's case, and dangerous enough to kill someone. Right. Now, as regards the present-day vaccines, the ones that are recommended for us and for children, um, how many are recommended for children these days in the United States? About a dozen or so? This is a little complicated to answer because we we vaccinate against 14 diseases, but some of those vaccinations involve several doses, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and some of them are combined with other vaccinations into uh, single shots. Right. So there's the the one that combines diphtheria and tetanus and whooping cough, Mm -hmm. for instance. Yes, exactly. Mumps, measles, rubella. Mm -hmm. So with those current vaccines, are the risks that we're hearing about from anti-vaccination groups, are they dramatically overblown? In most cases, they're either overblown or, in some cases, invented, in some cases, distorted in one way or another. Um, And it kind of depends on the group and what the concern is. There was a really great study of vaccine side effects done by... um, Let's see if I can remember this, the name of the group. I'm really, really bad with... um, acronyms (laughs) acronyms <laughs> and get easily confused. I know what you're talking about, though. They reviewed something like 12,000 studies. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So, and I'm actually flipping through the back of my book right now in <laughs> like a desperate attempt to find... Um, well, this is a panel of experts that reviewed, as we say, thousands of studies in order to get, um, you know, sort of a bird's eye view of the cumulative risks of, of all the standard vaccines that are out there. And they ended up concluding that... They concluded that there are some side effects associated with certain vaccines. And reading their report, which was over 600 pages long, was actually really comforting to me um, in that it was obvious that they'd been painstaking in their assessment of the literature and their assessment of the evidence. And they had um, definitively identified, for example, that the chickenpox vaccine can cause chickenpox. It's most likely to do that in people who have compromised immune systems. And then they found that a number of vaccines can cause allergic reactions in people who have very severe allergies. The administration of any vaccine can cause fainting. And that has more to do with the needle than it does with the vaccine itself. And then there were also some other side effects, um, joint and muscle pain. And there was a side effect um, that's very rare but quite serious with the measles vaccine um, that is happens in people, again, who have compromised immune systems. Um, and it's called measles inclusion encephalitis. That's very rare, but it does happen. But the um, most widely touted fear uh, among a lot of anti-vaccination advocates is the fear of contaminants or uh, extra mm-hmm. ingredients, um, whether mm-hmm. they be uh, what are called adjuvants, is that the word? Yeah. Uh, that are yeah. meant to uh, increase the effectiveness of a vaccine. These are chemicals that are added or preservatives, uh, some of which contain mm-hmm. compounds like uh, mercury, for instance, or formaldehyde. What about the risks associated with those chemicals? Sure. Um The risks associated with those chemicals are different when you 
isolate those chemicals and think of them in high doses, which is what people tend to do when they're they're worrying over um, exposure to those chemicals. In many cases, the amount of that substance that's entering the body through vaccination is actually less than is already in the bloodstream. So, And that's true of, of a number of the things, including uh, formaldehyde that people are uh, concerned about. Um, you already have formaldehyde in your body. It's actually a product of your metabolism. And at any given moment, you have more circulating through your bloodstream than you're going to get through a vaccination. This committee that looked at those 12,000 studies and, and looked hard for side effects, they investigated a long list of possible side effects, and they only found good evidence supporting a handful of those. In most of the other cases, there just wasn't enough evidence out there for them to say yes or no. And in some cases, there was enough evidence for them to say it's very unlikely that this is a side effect. So that was the case with autism. So that was one of the side effects that they looked at. And there has been enough research there um, for them to say not this definitively cannot happen because in science, you, you can't really prove a negative. But they did say there all the evidence points to the probability that this is not a side effect. Of course, the fear that uh, certain vaccines could cause autism can be traced back, I think, to a study by a, a British doctor, Andrew Wakefield, uh, in 1998, that got a lot of press and kicked off a widespread alarm, but was largely discredited, his study. And in fact, it was later learned that he was taking money from a lawyer who was suing pharmaceutical uh, companies on the basis of this claim. Mm -hmm. And uh, since then, no one's managed to replicate his findings. Uh, the medical mm -hmm. establishment certainly doesn't believe he was on to anything at all. Yeah. What's more surprising to me than the fact that that study was exposed as, as possibly fraudulent and very certainly problematic, what's more surprising is that it ever earned the kind of attention it got. And the reason why is that it wasn't really a study. It was a case series, um, and it was a very small case series. I, I think the number of children who were examined in this case series was 12 children. And, um, and a, a population of that size is almost never enough to predict something that's happening on a grander scale. That problem was evident from the very beginning. There's also a sentence in the original a study in their paper that says we did not prove any association between um, symptoms of autism and the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. So that's that's right there hmm. in the study. So why did this get more attention than it seems to have deserved? And why were people so eager to believe this despite the fragility of the evidence? And I want to hear the answer. I want to hear your answer. <laughs> But uh, we should mention that not only did it get what you say is disproportionate attention initially, but it lives on. Yeah. The large amount of, of contrary evidence and the things that would discredit both the, the guy and his anecdotal account that you just described have not managed to persuade people in a lot of cases. And in fact, some very famous people like uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who mm -hmm. continues to um, champion the anti-vaccine cause based on the idea that those vaccines cause autism. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So what is your answer? Where does this fear come from, if not analytical appraisal of the actual risks and the actual evidence? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it comes from a lot of different places. And and I'll talk about a few of those places. Sure. And I think it's different from person to person. I, I think the people who are vulnerable to fears of vaccines, and I include myself in that group, are diverse and come to those fears through different kinds of experiences and, and different backgrounds. But one of the things that I think was going on with that particular study was our eagerness for a David versus Goliath story. And I know that I'm I'm guilty of being partial to that kind of narrative as much as anyone is. And uh, the idea that this one researcher was through this very small study turning up evidence that a massive pharmaceutical industry was harming children everywhere was, you know, I think one reporter called it a a story too good to fact check. (laughs) It's a very compelling narrative. And in many cases, I think it becomes symbolic of other kinds of oppression. And I'm sympathetic to that, too, in that I think that there are widespread abuses of power in our country and in the world and in the medical system. And I do think that systematic oppression is real. Um, That said, I don't think everything that goes on in medicine or in government is part of a grand scheme. And the more I learned about vaccination, the less I became convinced that this was a situation where pharmaceutical companies were abusing their power and hurting children. You write at one point that some of the mothers... um you were communicating with those who were afraid of and uh, opposed to vaccines, acknowledged that in some ways it was a a deep um, dislike or suspicion of capitalism itself. Oh, yeah. A number of the people I know who are vaccine hesitant feel hesitant because of their relationship to capitalism and because of their fears and concerns around capitalism. And in most cases, I share those fears and concerns. I, I have a deep suspicion of capitalism. I'm wary of what it's doing to the environment, and I'm wary of what it's doing to us socially. But when I really started thinking about how vaccination works and what it does, I was impressed by how very different from capitalism, this system is, the system of vaccination. And and what I mean by that is the simplest way that we could talk about the capitalist system is that a very great number of people share the burdens of capitalism, share what we could call the, the downsides of capitalism, which are many, and a very small number of people reap the benefits of capitalism. But what's going on with vaccination is interesting and, to my eye, quite beautiful in that um, the burdens of the system are shared when everyone participates, the burdens are shared equally. There is this chance of a side effect. There's some risk, but we're sharing that risk across the entire population. Um, Whether you're rich or poor or have great access to health care or minimal access to health care, no one is being unfairly singled out to bear that risk. And the benefits are shared across the population. 
We're in this era, as you point out, of great distrust of institutions of all kinds, you know, whether it be mm-hmm. so-called Western medicine or government or even journalism. Um, we're also in this era when the whole idea of the common good and sacrificing individual freedoms or choice for the sake of the collective is under fire on both the right and the left, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, on the right, it might be opposition to certain kinds of taxes or regulations, but on the left, um, well, I think you point out that the anti-vax movement uh, is largely composed of sort of liberal-minded people, right? I'm not sure that's accurate. There's a few different demographics that tend towards not vaccinating or only partially vaccinating. One of them is the demographic I belong to, which is well-educated, white, upper-middle-class women. Um, but then there's there's other groups that tend to avoid vaccination, and, and that happens also on the religious right in a couple other groups. So I'll, uh, I'll withdraw my... Uh my equation, you know, there of um, certain positions with certain ideologies. But I do think we could find examples on the left, too, of questioning a kind of collectivism uh, when it's opposed to their their beliefs. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the, the revelations in your book, uh, and I'm not sure at what point you came to this in your own thinking, was that the question of whether to vaccinate is in some sense uh, a question of whether your body belongs solely to you and whether your health is solely your concern. Yeah. And when I first started writing about this subject, the way that it was often cast in popular magazines, like the pregnancy magazines that I flipped through in my midwife's waiting room, was as an issue of personal choice. And the magazines would frame this as a a question of there is no right, there is no wrong. It's, It's just whatever you feel most comfortable with. And the more I learned about this subject and the more I thought about it, the less I felt that that was true, I began to realize that the choices that I was making for my son and his body around vaccination were also choices I was making for everyone who was going to come into contact with him. And there were situations where I myself actually felt comfortable with the idea of him getting a certain disease, but I felt far less comfortable making that decision for someone else. Um, So, for instance, chickenpox uh, was a disease that I felt um, comfortable with my son potentially catching. Um, But when I thought about the other people that he came into contact with, um, I felt uncomfortable making that decision for, say, someone who is HIV positive Mm. or someone who's being treated for cancer or someone whose family lives in extreme poverty and doesn't have good access to health care. I knew that for that sort of family, a case of chicken box could mean something different than what it was going to mean for my family. I was struck uh, reading your book by how far back opposition to vaccination goes. Vaccinations themselves are, are fairly ancient in the form you mentioned earlier of variolation, that is taking infectious material from one person and sticking it in another person to build up their immunity. I had no idea that it goes back hundreds of years, much less thousands mm-hmm. of years in some cultures. But um, as soon as vaccinations became really widespread in Europe, for instance, or in early America, there were people already trying to resist being forced to get those vaccinations, right? 
Yeah, it, there's been opposition to vaccination from the moment that the technology emerged. So from the very beginning and even before in that you mentioned variolation. So variolation was specific to smallpox. And it was a practice where people had discovered that if they took um, a smallpox um, pustule, so infectious material from the body of, of a person who had smallpox and inserted it into the flesh of usually a child who was healthy, that that child was very likely to develop a mild case of smallpox that wouldn't kill them. Smallpox had a fatality rate for much of history of, of about 30%. Mm -hmm. And variolation had a fatality rate of about 1%. Wow. That's not a fatality rate that we would accept today in our modern area, era for vaccination. But at the time when variolation was really the only way of controlling smallpox, that was um, that was preferable for a lot of people to leaving it to chance. Well, I mean, 1% versus 30, they were pretty smart in assessing the odds, weren't they? Sure, yeah. And Cotton Mather, actually, in the United States, was one of the first people to advocate for variolation. And uh, and he advocated for it during a smallpox epidemic that was a very deadly epidemic. And, um, and records were kept of how many people were variolated and how many people died after variolation and how many people got smallpox and how many people died after smallpox. And it was observable at the time that variolation was saving people's lives and increasing their likelihood of survival. But even so, Cotton Mather was seriously unpopular for advocating for variolation. He had a firebomb thrown through his window, and people in general were not eager to embrace this idea that felt very foreign and very um, disgusting, I think, to people for a, a number of different reasons. Variolation was often done using either infectious material from another person's body or from a cow. And both of those situations were seriously disturbing to people. The, the idea of animal matter mixing with human matter mm -hmm. um, was as alarming to people of that era as the idea of introducing a chemical into your body is now alarming to us. How fascinating to hear that a guy who also prosecuted alleged witches in Salem was so forward-looking on the, on the question of vaccination. Yeah, he's a complicated character. Um, and I think he, he tended to be overzealous in a number of different <laughs> directions. Um, and in some ways, I don't blame the people who were reluctant to hear his medical advice um, because he'd been unreliable and overzealous on other subjects. Mm. You know, it was in very interesting to learn about some of the anti-vaccination movements uh, in response, again, to compulsory vaccination. There was mm -hmm. an anti-vaccination league in the mid-19th century in England, and mm -hmm. uh, there was a movement in the early 20th century in the U.S. Uh, one of its leaders was a woman named Laura Little, mm -hmm. whose own child, I guess, was killed by side effects of a vaccine and took up arms against vaccines. You have a quote from her that sounds very, very contemporary. Be your own doctor, run your own machine. Mm -hmm. Again, this idea that it's all your own uh, and that take matters into your own hands, uh, whatever the authorities may say. 
One of the things that was surprising to me about researching these early vaccination movements, particularly the one in Victorian England, was how contemporary the ideas felt to me, particularly how contemporary the fears felt, but also the desires, you know, that that desire of Laura Little to be in charge of her own body, to take control of her own machine. I think that's that's very much a contemporary desire today to not have to rely on uh, the medical system or experts, um, but to be in charge of our own health. That's an enduringly seductive idea. And I think it's enduringly seductive in part because it's not entirely possible. No one of us is wholly in charge of our own health. My sister, who's a philosopher, pointed this out to me as, as I was writing this book. She pointed out that we're, we're always dependent. Our health is always dependent on the choices other people are making. That's not specific to vaccination. There's a lot of different situations where our health and well-being depends on the people around us making responsible decisions. You were you were fortunate to have two family members who offered <laughs> wise perspectives uh, that you include in the book. Your father, the doctor, who you know has a very um, nuanced view of medicine, and your sister, who teaches ethics and is obviously a very thoughtful person. And you quote her as saying, uh, "The problem. This is the problem of say opting out of vaccinations. The problem is in making a special exemption just for yourself." She says. This reminds her of a way of thinking proposed by the philosopher John Rawls. Uh, I hope this isn't too pointy-headed for our listeners, but I think it's a really good <laughs> observation about John Rawls, who is an ethicist, famous philosopher. Uh, imagine that you do not know what position you're going to hold in society. Rich, poor, educated, insured, no access to health care, infant, adult, HIV positive, healthy immune system, etc., but that you are aware of the full range of possibilities. What you would want in that situation is a policy that is going to be equally just no matter what position you end up in. That was very affecting to me um, when my sister said that, and, and it reinforced my sense that the choice not to vaccinate is sometimes, not always, but sometimes a symptom, not just of privilege, but of the mindset that accompanies privilege. Um, this idea that you are entitled to things that other people don't and can't have, um, or that you are in some way special and your child deserves an advantage that isn't available to everyone else. And I, I think that kind of thinking is, among the people I know, fairly common. And I know that I'm guilty of that as well at times. And I didn't expect this book to turn into another meditation on privilege. I say another because my book about race was also a meditation on privilege. But it did become that because the evidence so strongly suggested that privilege plays a part in this. You know, it was it was really interesting uh, to learn, as you said earlier, that some of the anti-vaccination fears not only go back quite a ways, but the way in which they were framed itself is very similar to the way they're mm -hmm. framed today. I thought this was all a very modern thing. I kind of mm -hmm. assumed, without researching it, that this was an outgrowth of sort of the backlash against Western everything that occurred in the 60s, when people started saying Western technology is destroying our planet, Western politics uh, and, and capitalism is destroying 
you know, uh, other countries' uh, freedoms, uh, and Western medicine is trampling on our health, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, All -hmm. of these things are identified with imperialism, capitalism, heartless rationalism, and therefore everything Mm -hmm. Eastern seemed to take on an aura of almost magic wisdom, right? Any kind of medical practice that came from, say, China or India uh, you know, got more credibility. Mm-hmm. And I sort of mm-hmm. thought the anti-vax thing was an outgrowth of that. Yeah. I, you know, I did also, before I began this research, and one of the things that I learned initially that surprised me was um, that vaccination is not, strictly speaking, a product of Western medicine. Variolation was Eastern medicine. In both the East and the West, vaccination and variolation were folk remedies. And then the other surprise, and this was a surprise that felt very personal to me in my research, was that when I started reading Nadja Durbach's history of the anti-vaccine uh, movement in, in Victorian England, that's titled Bodily Matters, I had this chilling moment where I realized that my own fears weren't new. (laughs) And because I was seeing my own fears around vaccination echoed in this text that was about Victorian England. And that's the point in my research where I really stepped back and thought, oh, okay, this might actually have less to do with my historical moment than I think it does. Uh And this, this might be about fears that are quite enduring and emblematic of something else. And that's actually also when I started really pursuing my thinking on metaphor. And and this book is as much about metaphor as it is about vaccination. Um, But I started thinking about the metaphors that cluster around vaccination and have clustered around it for a very long time. So one of those um, is the metaphor of pollution. That was a huge concern in Victorian England, and it continues to be a huge concern today around vaccination, even though our manner and method and the diseases that we're vaccinating against now are totally different than what was going on Mm -hmm. in, in Victorian England. They were not using needles, for example, and they only had one vaccine. It's a vaccine that we no longer use, the smallpox vaccine. All of the details around vaccination pretty much were different in that time period, but the fears were similar and the metaphors were similar. So anti-vaccination advocates in in Victorian England talked about the pollution of the blood and, and their fear of bodily pollution and their fear that the, the state was polluting the individual. That's also really typical of anti-vaccine rhetoric today, a fear of the body being polluted by toxins, the body being polluted by chemicals. And when I examined that fear in myself, I realized that I had a lot of fears and anxieties associated with something that felt out of my control, which is the, the pollution of the environment at large. And that I was focusing in those anxieties on something that felt like it was within my control, which was the question of what I was and wasn't going to put into my child's body. It's interesting, though, and you make this clear in your book, that a very ancient, maybe primordial taboos associated with pollution uh, Mm -hmm. that might have included long ago things like menstrual blood, right? You know, Mm -hmm. and other things that were meant to 
be dirty and tainted and unholy, right? Now mm-hmm. has attached itself to, to modern things. So mm-hmm. it is the products of modern technology that are considered to be the scariest, most polluting substances of all. And that's where all the fears seem to focus now. Keith Kalur, who is an environmental journalist and who uh, writes for Discover Magazine, wrote this recently in a blog on Discover. Um, Although our improved health and longevity are due to science, we moderns in the industrial world increasingly blame diseases, some that are wholly psychosomatic, on technologies that we owe our less diseased, better living lives to. What many of us are most afflicted with today are assorted fears and dreads stemming from the very advances that have made us the wealthiest, healthiest humans of all time. Some of us, for example, are being made sick by wind turbines, others by overhead power lines and Wi-Fi signals. Is your cell phone killing you? Or are your brains being fried by electro-smog? Many attribute all manner of diseases to genetically modified foods or to chemical compounds used in plastics or furniture. What is your body burden? Did you know that your couch may be killing you? The media, thanks to crusading journalists and activists and influential pundits, fan these fears. Now, I want to quickly say I'm not trying to... um, ridicule a lot of people's, in some cases, justified worries about these things. But there is something more going on here, you've pointed out. It is something, I don't know if the word theological is appropriate, but Mm. there's a way in which a very old kind of source of dread has attached itself to new things. Yeah, it's, it's an old apocalyptic vision that's projected onto our, our new modern landscape. One of the places where that became very vivid for me is when I was looking into the word toxin. This word comes up a lot around vaccines and especially in anti-vaccine rhetoric. The word toxin, the idea of toxicity, concerns about toxic additives in vaccines. And so as I was doing my research, I looked up the word toxin and was very surprised to learn that the primary meaning of that word is um, a biologically produced poison. Uh, For instance, the pertussis bacteria creates um, a toxin, the pertussis toxin, that is what causes the cough that um, goes along with whooping cough, Um, that very long-lasting, very, in some cases, dangerous cough. The tetanus toxin is, is a deadly neurotoxin. Some of the most dangerous toxins known to man are um, biologically produced toxins. They're they're not actually chemical and they're not Mm -hmm. man-made. That was an interesting revelation for me. I think I was very contemporary in my thinking and that my tendency is to think of man-made chemicals, synthesized chemicals as inherently toxic and when that's not necessarily the case, there's there's a good number of natural substances that are deadly to us, <laughs> and there's also a good number of man-made substances that are um, good for our health and not dangerous. I do think that this fear of chemicals and man-made substances, it's a way of struggling with how quickly our world is changing and our anxieties about that change. And our deep suspicions that this change might not be for the better and could possibly be for the worse. There is a lot of evidence, as that excerpt that you just read um, shows, that our health has been advanced by the changes in our technologies. 
But there's a fairly widespread suspicion, I think, that um, that we're killing ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, so much of our information producing and distributing apparatus, so much of our media is focused on what we should be afraid of. I'm only the billionth mm-hmm. person to point this out. But it is staggering, honestly, how much of the business of producing information is dedicated to identifying sources of fear, often Mm -hmm. mistakenly. I mean, Mm -hmm. every five seconds, we learn about something new that we have to start worrying about. You know, it's an impossible burden. I mean, we're supposed to be afraid of the disease and the cure in many cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and part of this has to do with what we consider a good story, right? And in, in journalism, your job is not just to report the facts, but your job is to find a story that's going to be compelling. And one of my concerns when I was working on this book is when I got far enough into the research to realize that the story I was going to be telling was that, well, vaccines are basically safe and (sighs) we don't need to worry too much about the side effects. I was concerned that that's that doesn't that's sell. a highly <laughs> unsexy story. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> it's it's not the kind of thing that will make books fly off the shelves in my imagination. And for me, one of the primary challenges of writing the book is that I felt that the story at the heart of it was a, a story that not that many of us are that interested in hearing. Is that why you worked uh, Dracula into this? <laughs> That's not why, but Dracula was awfully helpful to me. I enjoyed Dracula. I, I think I could have gotten even more Dracula into this book than than ended up appearing there. Explain um, uh, briefly how Dracula, Bram Stoker's novel, uh, is relevant to this discussion. I started reading vampire literature when I was researching that Victorian anti-vaccinationist movement that I was talking about anti-vaccine activists were using the vampire as a metaphor for the vaccinator or the the evil doctor who descended on the innocent baby and robbed the child of its life. And I was curious to see whether if I read Victorian vampire literature, if that metaphor of the vaccinator would appear in any of that literature. And what was surprising and interesting to me about Dracula in particular was that there are a lot of metaphors at play, but one of the most obvious is that Dracula, the vampire, is a metaphor for disease. And the vampire hunters who travel the world uh, trying to rid it of Dracula are a metaphor for medicine. You mentioned that metaphor uh, is a really important part of uh, this book. And in fact, a a huge influence on you, I think, uh, were Susan Sontag's books slash essays, Illness as Metaphor and AIDS as Metaphor. And it's been years since I read those, so uh, don't expect me to give a great summary. (laughs) But I do remember her questioning a lot of the metaphors that are used when we describe, for instance, cancer, which she was suffering from at that time, time she wrote Illness as Metaphor. And the kind of war imagery we often associate with fighting, battling, combating disease. I myself, I think, uh, chastened by her writing and by all kinds of um, indoctrination I've gotten as a uh, right-thinking kind of guy. I've tried to avoid those metaphors when I talk about science, but it's harder than, excuse me, harder than hell to do so. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really hard. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, I was doing a, um, a show on what are called jumping genes, 
segments of DNA in our genome that are capable of reproducing themselves and spreading in the genome. And there are these other genes that have sprung up that, that sort of hold them back. And, um, you know, a lot of the science for the layman descriptions of this phenomenon call it an arms race between two kinds of genes, mm. which makes it really easy to understand. And I was trying to avoid that. And at some point in an interview with a scientist, I started using that language myself. And I thought, oh, boy, you know, Susan Sontag and lots of my college professors would be uh, unhappy with me. <laughs> but, you know, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't avoid it. I, I wanted to make it clear, and I wanted to use an analogy or a metaphor that people would get. Can we ever do without those kinds of figurative descriptions? I mean, is there any real use of language that doesn't involve them? No, I, I don't think we can escape metaphor, and I don't think we should even try. I think the real challenge is striving for metaphors that forward our understanding in some way. And I think there may be situations where a violent metaphor helps us understand something and is necessary. I've also been struggling with this ever since I got into writing this book and rereading Susan Sontag's essays again and again. I've been very aware of the language that I use around disease, and I've tried fairly hard not to use war metaphors, even when I'm casually talking about disease. So I, I try now to not to say, for instance, that I'm fighting a cold. Um, <laughs> but as you observed, it's really difficult unless you replace that metaphor with some other metaphor. And that, I think, is the opportunity that this opens up for us, is an opportunity to replace an old, in some cases, tired and inaccurate metaphor with one that may be more instructive to us. So in my research, I, I met with an immunologist, a professor of immunology, who very generously gave me a, a two-hour explanation of the immune system in a coffee shop in Iowa City. And one of the things that struck me about that long conversation about the immune system is that he never once used a, a war metaphor. His metaphors tended to be educational. And I was really, really interested in that. And I was interested in how my own thinking about disease and even my own attitudes towards disease might change if I applied educational metaphors instead of war metaphors to say, a common cold. So what if instead of saying I'm fighting a cold, what if I, I said something along the lines of I'm being instructed by a cold right now <laughs> um, <laughs> or I'm learning from a cold at the moment um, <laughs> or I'm getting schooled by a bad cold. <laughs> Do you realize how PC that sounds, though? You know, I mean, uh, yeah, avoiding yeah. war language when... Oh, totally. Except to me, from the inside... It's really exciting in terms of how it shifts my relationship to being sick. Um, instead of feeling embattled, I feel like I'm being enriched in some way. And for me, psychologically, that's a really interesting situation to be in. I don't know if it's the most accurate or best way of regarding a cold, but I think it's psychologically interesting. Well, one of the most common, I think, almost euphemistic words these days when describing any kind of interaction that might be a little unpleasant is to play it down by calling it a conversation. 
Mm. So you could say, I'm having a conversation with, with E. coli. I'm having a conversation yes. with salmonella <laughs> or influenza. Um, it's funny because I watched, uh, you may have too, this new documentary on Susan Sontag that I think just uh, premiered on HBO uh, mm-hmm. this past week. And they had a clip of her talking about cancer. And I'm pretty sure I remember her saying about her first bout, which um, she went into remission, that she had successfully fought it off or something like that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I could be wrong. Well, yeah. And I don't don't think even Sunsun Sontag herself, her goal was never to eradicate metaphors, but to call attention to the metaphors we're using so that we can think about how they're affecting the way that we understand disease. Mm -hmm. And she actually makes that quite clear in her second essay, AIDS and Its Metaphors, that her goal is not to clean the disease of metaphor or somehow strip it of metaphor, but to use an examination of the metaphors we use around a disease to reveal how we're thinking and and what sorts of problems we might have in our thinking. By the way, I said AIDS as metaphor. You gave the correct uh, name of that essay. I messed it up. Oh, AIDS and its metaphors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Yula, uh, may all your uh, conversations with bacteria and viruses be as pleasant (laughs) as uh, this one has been for me. Oh, thank you. This was a really, really interesting conversation. I I really enjoyed it. Far more than I enjoy a conversation with a cold. (laughs) (laughs) Yula Biss teaches creative writing at Northwestern University. Her most recent book is on immunity. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. We're online at 7thAvenueProject.com. Also on iTunes and SoundCloud and uh, lots of other podcast apps. You can listen just about any way you want. I'm Robert Polly, and I will be back next week.